Well, I was under the impression someone was reading with me here this morning, but I will. I'll read. Last chance. Did I? Come on. You've been recruited now, so. All right, what am I going to read? Here. To there. Okay. Oh, do I need a mic? I'm loud enough, though, right? Am I good? There we go. Meanwhile, the Philistine, or this is uh, 1 Samuel 17, 41 to 50. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, but it is, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistines moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he took out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And this is John 14, 9 to 14. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm, the Father, that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of, on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe in, on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me and will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Amen. Thank you, Dave, for, for reading this morning. This... <laughs> I'm going to just jump into with the John passage that he just read. Uh, what, what do you need to know about Jesus? Well, there's so much we can say, but I, I want to just point out some simple things here. The Father living in Jesus did the work. That's what he says. Uh, it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. Those are the words of Jesus. Uh, so the life of intimate relationship and humble dependence on the Father uh, was what caused things to happen. That's how Jesus lived. That's how he, he modeled that for us. Uh, so he had an intimate relationship with the Father, so much so that the disciples, when they saw how he prayed and how he interacted and even called him Father, they wanted to know. They said, teach us to pray, teach us to have a relationship with the Father like you do. 
We want that. And he had a humble dependence on the Father. He'd always say, you know, I don't do anything unless the Father's in it, unless the Father's doing it, right? I'm never out of alignment with the Father. Amazing. And um, so, and he's, he says, the evidence of that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me and that I'm living in this uh, intimate, humble, dependent relationship with the Father is the works, the things you see. So Jesus' life was a work, a sinless life. That's, whoa, wow, that's significant. And his teaching was the work. People heard his teaching and said, we've never heard anyone teach like this before. And then miracles as well, right? Healings and, and deliverances and God doing amazing things in people's lives through Jesus. And he's saying, this is the evidence that I'm living in a close, intimate relationship with the Father. And then he says this. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Wow. 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 So whoever believes in Jesus can come into this same sort of God-on-the-inside intimate relationship, and they can walk in humble dependence on him, and they can do the kind of things that Jesus does. That's pretty mind-blowing. That's pretty mind-blowing. Well, I think it's a lot like David's story. And before we get to that, we've covered a lot of territory. If you're just joining us, you see these posters on the wall. I see we missed one, this one that the MACTAC gave out this morning. It was strong for a long time. But anyhow, we've been working our way from the beginning of the Bible to the end, Genesis to Revelation, reading... Uh, basically a reading plan called The Story. It's all in a book. If you don't have one, we have a couple at the uh, info desk. We'd love for you to get one so you can read along. Uh, we're just going to go into our Advent series. So this is the last sermon in the story series for a bit because we're going to go into a special Advent series uh, during the Christmas season, and then we'll jump back in January, back where we left off. So, um, but just to let you know, if you want to read along with us, you can get one of those books for free. We're just giving them away. We, I don't know. We've given away over 300 and 400 now. I don't know. We're getting to maybe about 400 of these copies of the story. And I've been talking to people. He's saying, you're reading it. That's awesome. If you fell behind, don't be discouraged. Now you've got the Christmas season to catch up, right? You've actually got about a month to catch up. So just keep reading, and, uh, and you'll get a, an understanding of the big picture, the big overarching picture of the Bible, where things fit, but also the, what is God doing from the beginning to the end? the way that he's going out to bring people back into relationship with him. So, we've covered a lot of territory in the last few weeks, and this morning I'm just going to deal with one very fun but significant story, and so I want to give you a quick review by video so that you don't miss the stuff that I'm not going to be able to talk about this morning. So let's just watch this video. It just covers the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, if you guys want to just cue that up, that would be great. I want you to catch the big picture before I jump into a uh, one smaller story. The books of First and Second Samuel. They're two separate books in our modern Bibles, but that division is due simply to scroll length. It was originally written as one coherent story. We're just going to cover the book of First Samuel in this video. So after Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai and eventually came into the Promised Land. And there, Israel was supposed to be faithful to God and obey the covenant commands. Before the book of Samuel, judges showed how Israel failed at that task big time. It was a period of moral chaos, and it showed Israel's need for wise, faithful leaders. The book of Samuel provides an answer to that need. 
The book of Samuel's story focuses on three main characters. The prophet Samuel, where the book gets its name, and then King Saul, and after that, King David. And all three of them transitioned Israel from a group of tribes ruled by judges into a unified kingdom ruled by King David in Jerusalem. And the book of Samuel has a fascinating design that weaves the story of these three characters together in four main parts. Samuel, he's the key leader and prophet in the first section of the book, but then he also plays a key role in the next section, which is Saul's story. And it's told in two movements, Saul's rise to power and then his failures. And the second part is about his downfall and his tragic death. And then the drama of Saul's demise is matched by David's exciting rise to power. And then David's story is told in two movements. First, he rides the wave of his success, followed by his own tragic failure and the slow self-destruction of his family and then his kingdom. The book concludes with an epilogue that reflects back over the whole story. So let's dive in and see how this all unfolds. Part one picks up from the chaos of the book of Judges, and we're introduced to a touching story about a woman named Hannah. And she's grieved because she has never been able to have children. And by God's grace, she finally has a son named Samuel. And in joy, she sings this amazing poem in chapter 2. And the poem is all about how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, about how despite tragedies and human evil, God is working out his purposes in history. And also it's about how God will one day raise up an anointed king for his people. Now, Hannah's poem has been placed here at the beginning of the book to introduce these key themes that we're going to see throughout the whole story, like the next one. Samuel grows up and becomes a great prophet and leader for the people of Israel, at the same time that the Philistines rise to power as Israel's arch nemesis. And in this crucial battle, the Israelites get arrogant, and instead of praying and asking God for help, they trot out the Ark of the Covenant as this kind of magic trophy that will automatically grant them victory in battle. And so because of their arrogant presumption, God allows Israel to lose the battle and the ark is stolen. So the Philistines, they take the ark and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And then the god of Israel defeats the Philistines and the god Dagon without an army by sending plagues on the people. And then the Philistines don't want the ark anymore, obviously, and they send it back to Israel. And the point of this little story seems to be this. God is not Israel's trophy, and he opposes pride among the Philistines, but also among his own people. And so Israel needs to remain humble and obedient if they want to experience God's covenant blessing, which opens up into the next large section. The Israelites come to Samuel and they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. Go find one for us. And so Samuel, he's kind of ticked off and he goes to consult with God. And God says, yes, their motives are all wrong, but if a king is what they want, give them one. And so we're introduced to the figure of Saul. Now, Saul is a tragic figure because he begins full of promise. He's tall, he's good looking, he's a perfect candidate for a king, but he has deep character flaws. He's dishonest, he lacks integrity, and he seems incapable of acknowledging his own mistakes. And so these flaws become his downfall. He wins some battles at the beginning, but his flaws run so deep, he eventually disqualifies himself by blatantly disobeying God's commands. And so the aging Samuel confronts Saul and Israel. He had warned the people that they would only benefit from a king who's humble and faithful to God. Otherwise, the kings of Israel will bring ruin. 
So he informs Saul that God is going to raise up a new king to replace him. And so Saul's downfall begins, as God at the same time is working behind the scenes to raise up that new king. It's an insignificant shepherd boy named David. He's the least likely candidate to be king, but the famous story of David and Goliath shows that God's choice of David is not based on his family status, but simply on his radical and humble trust in the God of Israel. And so this story embodies all of the themes of Hannah's poem. Proud Saul and Goliath are brought low, while humble David is exalted. From here, we watch Saul slowly descend into madness, while David rises to power. So David starts working for Saul as a general, and he's winning all of the battles, and he's also winning all of the fame. And so Saul gets jealous, and he starts chasing David around, hunting him, trying to kill him. David's done nothing wrong, and so David simply runs and waits in the wilderness. And here we see David's true character. He has multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He simply trusts that despite Saul's evil, God will raise up a king for his people. What's interesting, too, is that many of the poems of David that you find in the book of Psalms are linked to this very period of his life, and they all express the same attitude of trust. And so this section of the book ends with Saul coming to a grisly death after losing a battle with the Philistines. First Samuel tells some of the most intricate, well-told stories you find anywhere in the Bible, and the characters Saul and David, they're portrayed very realistically. And the author's putting them forward as character studies so that you can find yourself in them. So in Saul's story, we see a warning. It's crucial that we reflect on our own character flaws and how they harm us and other people. And with God's help, we need to humble ourselves and deal with our dark side so that Saul's story doesn't become ours. David, on the other hand, is presented as an example of patience and trust in God's timing in our lives. And so he's running in the wilderness, being chased by Saul. David had every reason to think that God had abandoned him, but that's not what he thinks. And so David's story encourages us to trust that despite human evil, God is working out his purposes to oppose the proud and to exalt the humble. And that's what 1 Samuel is all about. All right. So that's a great overview. And now I'm going to dig right into one of every boy's favorite Bible story, David and Goliath. Isn't that exciting? I was just like a kid in a candy shop this week preparing because I got to study all sorts of fun things. And um, I'll share a couple of them with you this morning. Um, Let me start reading at the very beginning of chapter 17 where the story of David and Goliath begins. Now, Dave read a little bit of it. I'll read uh, the beginning. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damon between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. And there's a little stream there. If you ever go to Israel and you go to the valley of Elah, you can see the stream where the rocks are, etc. Okay, that's not in the Bible. I'm just adding. Okay, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. And so we're going to stop there. So um, six cubits. A cubit is, is, I brought my tape measure here to help with this. A cubit is the length from your elbow to your, your, the end of your fingers. 
if I've got that right, I, I've got a pretty average cubit, 18 inches. That's what a cubit, well, that's pretty average. And uh, so now, this is a tricky thing, measuring like this. Can you imagine like measuring stuff in your world like this? Now, and especially if you have a really long arm, you don't have to measure as much because it's over faster. But if you have a really shorter arm, uh, you get a lot more cubits. So can you imagine doing like how tall is your house or how long is your car or how whatever, you, you get a different measurement from other people. And even amongst the nations, there were different measurements. So it's tricky to find out how tall Goliath was. Now, if you're going to go with any sort of... Uh, you know, if you're getting anywhere close to even my arm, 18 inches, you're going to end up with nine feet something. Now, this is where a lot of people check out of the story. They go, nine feet. Has there ever been a person nine feet tall? And so there's, I want to talk about that sort of mental roadblock a little bit. I went sort of crazy this week trying to, trying to think about this, and I had a lot of fun. So I'm going to see if we can have some fun here this morning. I'm, I'm five foot 11 and three quarters. And you can tell I'm honest because a lying guy would have said I'm six feet. But I'm five foot eleven and three quarters. Okay? And so what I'm gonna get, do is I want every man in the house who's taller than me, so if you're six foot or up, stand up, okay? We just wanna see some tall guys, okay? So if you're taller than me, if you're six foot or taller, just stand up. Okay, so we've got some tall guys. I wouldn't say giants, but we got some big guys, okay? So let's 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 weed this out a little bit. If you're like six foot or six foot one, just sit down, okay? Let's, we want to get to the tallest guys, okay? okay some, we lost some of our tall guys. Okay, I would, if you're six two or six three, just sit down, okay? Whoa. All right, so it's the tall, this is the land of the giants, this section over here. So, Kyle, how tall are you? Uh, six, eight, four and a half. Six, four and a half. He's being super honest because he knows I've got the tape measure. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> how tall are you? Six four. Six four, six four and a half. I'm gonna borrow you, okay, by a half an inch. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Great. Are you willing? I yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't want to do this against your will. Now, what I also need is a, now they say they say that back in the days of, of David and Goliath, that the average man was, and you'll be excited to hear this, no matter what height you are, five three. They say five three. Five foot three. So I need, you know, I'd really love a teenager to help me with this. I don't know if anyone is even close to that. But is there any, any guy, boy, you're, you're like, who, any, or an adult, I'll take that too. But anyone who's close to five, three. But I want, I want a guy. Okay, because, I mean, I'll, oh. <laughs> Give him a big. This is a leader. He is a confident man. I love what he's doing. Okay. So we're just going to check your credentials here. All right. Oh, oh yeah, easily. Oh, no, no, you're, you're, you're almost too tall for the sample. But, well, I think you're like 5'5 five, five almost. Am I? Well, yeah, you're, you're still growing. You're still growing. Okay. So some people have said, okay, I want to get into a controversy really quickly. Some people have said that there's a scribal error in the text. This is a, and Christians have said this, and probably non-Christians have too. This is, there's a, it's not six cubits and a span, which is like six and a half cubits. It actually is a scribal error, and it's supposed to say four cubits and a half, four and a half, right? So instead of saying Goliath was nine feet tall, they're saying that he, he was only about six nine, six nine. But that if the average warrior in the Israelite army was shorter than JJ, right? 5'3", 
he would still seem like a giant. Now, the gap between you guys is not as big as 5'3 to 6'9, because what did you say? You were six, four and a half? Yeah. Okay, so this is only about a foot gap, right, roughly here, instead of a foot and a half, okay? So, but the Israelites said that they were like giants, and they, and they felt like when they came into, into Canaan that they saw guys who were so big that they felt like grasshoppers in their eyes. And so I started thinking about this, and I thought, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think. I, and so I started just looking into it. So I'm going to get my giant over here. Actually, can I get my David over here? Okay. Right. And then I'll get my Goliath. Or not Goliath yet. Yeah. Right. You're only 6'4". Okay. You stand on the floor here for a second here. And I'll just get down one step here. Okay. So 6'4". So I started, I started researching tall men. Right. In the NFL, there's never been a man taller than 6'10". Did you know that? Too tall Jones. He did some, I think he was also in police academy. Anyhow, he was 6'10". So um, let me see where I can find 6'10 here. Right about there. Okay, so you're not quite there. Can you step up a step so you can be too tall Jones for me? Okay, well, actually, you exceeded that. Now you're sort of Shaquille O'Neal. Okay, that's fine. Okay, so now we're into NBA players. So he's, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, you know, 7'1". There's lots of NBA players who are 7'1 or more. In fact, if we want to get to really big NBA players, you're going to have to go up another step probably. Okay, so now we're getting, okay, we, we passed Yao Ming, which is 7'5", and there's some other guys in there, there's 7'7", but I really only wanted guys who could be warriors. So Shaq, he's built like a tank. Some of the NFL players, there. one guy was 410 pounds, a lineman. I was like, whoa, that's like to be able to move on an NFL field, like you've got to be really mobile at 410 pounds, that's a, that's a warrior, right? Shaq's, I think he would be fierce in combat. If you took him to ancient Israel and put armor on him, you'd be scared of him. Yao Ming, I think you'd be scared of him. He's only 325 pounds. He's on the light side for giants, but that's not bad. Shaq at 370 is, is, is maybe a bit better. Anyhow, so then I thought, okay, well, well let's, let's go a little bit further from here. And you know what? What's, what's neat about what happens after this is one of the fan favorite giants of all time, most of us know who he is. He's from the movie The Princess Bride, and he is... Andre the Giant. Well, to get to Andre the Giant, you've got to be seven foot five. The same as Yao Ming, roughly. So are we there yet? One, two. Uh, yeah, you're actually a little bit exceeding it. So don't go any higher yet. Okay. Now, Canada, if you, if you don't believe in giants or you don't believe in big guys, Canada, Canadians for sure, of all the nations of the world, should believe in big men. Because we've actually had our fair share of big men. Do you know that? Um, in fact, the most... Uh, the, the Guinness Book of Records lists, um, what was they call him? The Cape Breton Giant. Uh, what was his last name? I can't remember his name. He's got his Scottish name, McCaskill or something. But he was 7'9", uh, I believe. Seven, yeah, he was 7'9". And he was the only giant, they say, that at that range or higher, that it wasn't some form of uh, um, thyroid gone crazy or whatever, that caused him to be that tall. It was just pure genetics. So he's the tallest guy on the, the world list of, you know, if you go to Wikipedia, you can find this, who actually just was naturally that. He was normal proportions. There was no, like, thyroid causing him to, like, because there's lots of that, right? There's lots of that. So that, I thought that was cool because he was just naturally that tall. So he was 7'9". Um, he was a strong man. He did all sorts of feats of strength. Um, he would uh, like some. He would walk around with a 300-pound barrel under either arm. 
and just walk around like that. Like the, eventually the circus heard of him and they took him around the world. Eventually he ended up uh, actually uh, in England performing for Queen Victoria. So this is 1800s. But uh, he could um, lift, the big thing they talked about was he would lift an anchor. Uh, they, I had some discrepancies. It was either 2,400 pounds or just 2,000 pounds. Maybe it was only 2,000. But he would lift it up to his chest, right? What's your gym like? Do you have a guy like that? You know? <laughs> And he's just benched, you know, just arm curling 20, 24. You know, I don't know what that's like, right? You know, how do you get that off the floor? 2,000 pounds, that's what he would do. He, his other trick that was really cool was he would pick up a full-sized horse and lift it over a four-foot fence and put it on the other side. I know you can do that with your cat. <laughs> but that doesn't make you a giant. Okay, so 7-7. Seven, seven. So the Cape Breton giant out in Nova Scotia, that was, wow, that's amazing. Also, the biggest couple in the world have roots in Canada. So um, Anna and, oh, I can't remember the names. Anyhow, he's American. She was Canadian. And he was on a tour sort of in this, you know, some show of oddities, look at the giant, when he met her. And she's bigger than him. So he was 7'7", seven, seven, and she is 7'11". 7'11". Seven, eleven. Seven, eleven. Now, that still doesn't make her the biggest woman in the world because there's been at least two women taller. There was one Chinese lady who was 8'1", and there's another one, I can't remember, but there's, they're right above eight feet tall. So he was the short, you know, he was short in the relationship. He was shorter than his wife, you know, probably in, felt sort of small every day, right? No, I'm <laughs> just kidding, right? It's just amazing, just amazing. But they're the tallest couple in the world, and they're Canadians, so we're proud of them. And then this morning, someone reminded me, thankfully, of one I totally missed on my, off my list, Edward Bupre from Willowbunch, Saskatchewan. Eight foot three, eight foot three. And he was also a strong man. Like some of these big guys, when they get that big, they're, they're in leg braces and they can't walk and they wouldn't make great fearsome warriors. But let's get you up to Edward's size, okay? Because we know it gets you bigger. So can you get to stand up another one? We want to get to uh, eight three here. Eight three, where's, what do I got here? Hard to read. Okay, there we go. So here's a three. Oh, you're pretty, that's pretty close. You're actually a little bit above it. So this is Edward <laughs> Beaupre from Willow Bunch. Not Kyle anymore. Okay? And now we're starting to get to the point where you could see where the Israelite army would say, hey, those guys are giants, right? Look at the difference. Look at this full, this difference in height, right? And, and I mean, when they get to this size, when they get to this size, these guys are like, um, they're trending plus 500 pounds, right? 520, 580. That's like, I've watched some guys. I actually watched a guy who, he was only 7'1", but I watched him do MMA, UFC fighting in the octagon, and it was hilarious because he was, he was uncoordinated, but he was still slaughtering guys because it was like he'd come up, these other guys would come in, they'd be, you know, over 200 pounds, full of muscle, but he's just monstrous. And so he'd grab onto them and then fall on them. And then, after that, it was just like a big brother beating up a little brother. And the, little, and the other guy squirming and trying to get away just like a kid. And I was just like, that's not even fair. That's not even fair. So this is my theory about Goliath, a theory I have. Is that, was Goliath a full-on, devastating terminator of a warrior, like a couple of the Canadian strongmen could have been? Right? If you can, like, lift 2,000 pounds, well, then that means you're lifting the other soldier and throwing him back down. Like, I mean... Uh, the guy from Cape Breton Island, his hand, eight inches wide, 
How's yours? Eight inches. Now you got this much to go, okay? And then it was 12 inches long. So you got a, you're not doing too bad, actually. Oh, oh, I didn't do it right. Yeah, you got about five inches to grow. But can you imagine if Kyle's hand was that big and that wide? He would just go, <laughs> <laughs> But these are people from Canada, right? He, his, the guy from Cape Breton Island, I studied him the most because I thought he was the biggest Canadian until I forgot about Edward Beaupre. But let me see. His shoulders were 44 inches wide. That's his shoulders. And he was not misformed in any way. He had normal, like, uh, dimensions. And he had the strength to match. Wow, I mean, where do you get a jacket, right? Like, seriously, that's amazing. That's amazing. That's how wide his shoulders were. So, I don't think Goliath was 6'9". I'm just throwing it out there. Okay, so, the tallest guy in the world... In, on record, now, note, I'll say on record because all the records I'm reading is only measuring the last couple hundred years. You go to Wikipedia, you, you, you know, they got stuff that got measured in the last couple hundred years. He's uh, 811, uh, Robert Waldlow. He's an Amer American. Now, I don't think he would have made a terribly good warrior because he was a little weak. You'll have to st step up one here. You'll have to step. Can you step up one more and come closer here to, to our Israelite uh, David down here? So, there you go. There's 811. And at this point, Kyle is standing where about the right height for Goliath, roughly. He's all, he's all, he, you're standing about nine, one, or two right there. Okay? Nine, one, or two. So, okay. So if you ran into uh, the tallest man in uh, the, the American, Robert Waldo, Ladlow, whatever, I can't remember his name, this is pretty much what you'd be looking at. And if you ran into Goliath, very similar. The difference was... Robert Ladlow at no point in his time was ever enlisted in the military, right? I think some of these giants were like the strong men. And I think some of them were just enlisted because they were super intimidating. In fact, the Bible tells a story about a guy who was pretty big, an Egyptian, and he was seven foot five. And he loses a battle to a much shorter guy. And how does he lose the battle? The shorter guy comes in with a staff, okay? So he comes, so a normal Israelite warrior, tough guy, comes in with a staff. He's got a full-on spear. You know what he does? Is he lets him, it doesn't say the play-by-play, -play, but basically it says that when he tries to get him, I don't know, he must dodge or something, and then he steals the guy's spear. So he must have been a bit clumsy for his, you know, he didn't have the best coordination. And then the, the small guy just stabs him right back with his own spear. That's how the battle goes. The bottle, and that's one of the very few in the Bible where they tell you his cubits, right? He was a five-cubit man, right? Or five and a half. Anyhow, so some of them might have been clumsy, but still great for intimidation. And some of them might have been full-on terminators. I think it's open. Now, why do I believe in the bigger Goliath? I believe, well, a few things. The Bible told me so. That's a pretty easy one. But let me give you a couple more. There's a record in the Egyptian, uh, you know, the Egyptians kept amazing record. The Canaanites didn't, and the Philistines didn't. So there's not a lot about the Philistines. There's record that they lived and they existed um, since the 1990s. Archaeology finally caught up with that one. But the Egyptians kept this record, and I, I'm just going to read it to you out of their um, it's a quote out of, what's the document? The text entitled, The Craft of the Scribes in 1250 B.C., which was used, so this is just before the time of David, okay? 
before the time of David. Uh, this was used to train Egyptian scribes. It, dis- it discusses a Canaanite mountain pass during a past battle. And this is what they wrote. They said, the face of the pass is dangerous with Shasu. That was their name for the Philistines. The face of the pass is dangerous with Shasu, hidden under the bushes. Big bushes, right? Some of them are four or five cubits, nose to foot. What, why would you measure nose to foot? I don't know, Egyptians. Okay. With wild faces. Egyptian cubics were longer than he, Hebrew common cubits. They were more like 20, almost 21 inches. And so a Shasu or a Philistine in their records would have measured somewhere between 6'10". So think of Kyle on the first step uh, all the way up to uh, eight foot seven, Almost as tall as the tallest man in modern history, who's 8'11", right? But they're saying, the bushes are full of these dudes, these really big guys. Now, this isn't the Bible saying this. This is the Egyptian records who kept really good records. So I believe in a full-size Goliath. Thank you, guys. Can you give them a great hand? Give them a great hand. Okay. So let's, let's go on. Oh, I'll give you one more. Uh, so here's my summary on that. I believe in a full-size Goliath because we're only, we've only kept record for a few hundred years, and we managed to get guys almost his size. And some of them who are almost his size are, would be serious warriors, right? They end up going in the Barnum and Bailey circuses, right, like, uh, uh, like the guy from Willowbunch and like the guy from Cape Bre- Breton Island. They end up going with the circuses because there was maybe no need at that time for you know, a great warrior to intimidate the enemy and then crush them with his big hands, right? But I believe that Goliath was the full height that the scriptures say. I believe that he was nine foot something, depending on how long you're measuring, and, uh, and that he was an intimidating presence. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor and bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. How do they know this? Because they got all this stuff after the battle. Right? They, they know the, the wet measurements because after the battle, they get, they, this was their plunder. On his legs were bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 uh, shekels. I think that's 15 pounds. So the point of the spear, 15 pounds. That's a really heavy end of the spear. Um, his shield bearer went ahead of him. So he's not even carrying his own shield. The shield bearer is going ahead of him. And Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. And Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, this is back at home, 
Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses. Cheeses? Can you say it like that? It's plural. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. Right? He's a worried dad, and he's sending his son as a messenger. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were, just like his dad told them to. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines, shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. And now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this, this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they'd been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, it's an interesting story. Since we know the end of the story, we know he didn't just come down to watch the battle. In fact, David had it in his heart to win the battle. But this is older brother talk, and if you've been a younger brother or an older brother, you know exactly what this is like. Now, what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Younger brother talk. Then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Hey, this leads a little bit to my theory here. He's been a warrior since his youth. Now, some of the, the big men's stories I was reading, some of these guys at age 11, some of the guys I listed, they're like 6'6". Six, six. Now, if the average height is 5'3", and you've got an 11-year-old who's 6'6", six, six, you say, hi, we see some potential. Let me give you a perspective, another measurement perspective. I should have had JJ and me stand together. Saul was head and shoulders above the Israelites. So if the average Israelite is 5'3", he's like 6, even, maybe. But he's the big man. He's Israelite's big man. In fact, that's what, when he's chosen as king, that's what they say. That he's head and shoulders with all the Israelites. He's good looking. He was tall. He's probably decently broad shoulders, maybe not 44 inches, but he was still. He was the champion. They said, give us a king. That was never God's plan. It was God's concession to them, but it was never God. Give us a king. He'll lead us into battle. 
So the thing that they wanted and they whined for and they, and they, they, they demanded of Samuel and God, God gives them, and then here's this moment where the king, the big man, is ready to do what they've asked him to do, lead us into battle. But his heart is so afraid. He's afraid. Let no one lose heart on account of the, this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Says, you're not, Saul said, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. Uh, David's probably about 16, 17. He is cor- he's, he's, uh, coronated as king. He's already been anointed as king. Did you know that? Jesse came to the house. God had told him to anoint a new king. Or, I mean, Samuel came to Jesse's house, and he said, bring out your boys. One of these guys is going to be pretty significant in the future. Okay, line them up from Eliab, the oldest, all the way down. Right? So it's, it's got to be Eliab, Samuel says in his heart. Look at this guy. Now, this is a firstborn. You know, this is a tough guy. He's a good-looking guy. This is a, and God speaks to him and says, uh, no, 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 no. Samuel, remember, I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart. Oh, man looks at the outside, and that's, I mentioned that last week. That's why we keep choosing bad leaders, because we're looking at the outside. We're not seeing the character. We're not seeing the inside. God was looking at the inside. You know what? He had assembled seven of his sons, and he didn't even bring David in. Think about that. Samuel's coming. Samuel's coming. Oh, there's going to be big guys. You know, get your muscle shirts on. Whatever, you know, get ready for this moment. You know, show that, you know, we, we got a strong family and we're really... David, David's popping around. Hey, what do you want me to do? Go, get, go take care of those sheep. We're doing important stuff here. Get, yeah, get going. And he goes down the line, seven sons, and he gets to the end and, and he says, this is funny. I came here to anoint someone as king and God won't let me anoint any of these seven. Do you... Is there any chance that you've actually missed one? Do you happen to have another son? Oh, yeah, there's the runt of the litter. Some actual commentators say that the word used there, there's the littlest, there's the smallest, could be potentially translated runt. Oh, he's just out there. Well, call. We're not going to sit down until he comes. And then Samuel anoints him as king, pours oil over his head. Now, that would be weird for all the brothers, especially Eliab, the oldest, oldest right? It's like, what? Seriously? That punk, that little brother. So he's 16 when he comes to the battle here, 16, maybe 17. He's been anointed as king, but he's not king. Saul's king. And he won't be king until he's 30. That's a pretty long journey in waiting for your moment, right? It's like Simba singing, just can't wait to be king. You know that song? Anyhow, well, he had a lot of years to sing that song. Because it didn't happen for a long time. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And this is the moment. David believes. David believes. And now he's going to try his absolute best to help Saul believe. Who's not believing, right? David said to Saul, if, if Saul believed, he would have put his armor on and went out and fought. But he doesn't believe. And so David says to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. So far, not a great resume, right? I I can keep sheep. Oh, good. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised 
uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, when I was reading that this week, I thought, I just can't stop. I have to Google search anybody who's ever fought a lion or a bear. That's another level of, like, fighting a bear, fighting a lion. There's a ton of stories about fighting them. But killing them, there's not as many, right? People have killed those kind of animals with spears or with different weapons. But but just to go hand to hand, seriously. So I read the two stories that interested me the most. The first one was a guy from Colorado. He was a jogger in the the mountains. Uh, A mountain lion comes out. It's not as big as it could have been. It's sort of like, you know, a teenager mountain lion, big enough to hunt but not quite as big as it might have grown. But it full-on attacks him, and he has this battle to the death with this mountain lion. And in the end, he chokes it out. And it becomes coolest among all his friends. Right? Goes back and like, yeah, what did you do yesterday? Yeah, I killed the mountain lion with my bare hands. <laughs> the guy's 155 pounds. No wrestling, no, like, jujitsu background, nothing. And he wrestles the mountain lion and chokes it out. I was like... And that's the coolest story. That's the coolest story. And as a guy who's 155 pounds, it gave me hope. (laughs) Bring on the mountain lions. Yeah. It's exciting. Not the big ones. Just a little smaller. Okay. But so it's possible. It's possible. Were there lions and bears in Israel at that time? Yes. Yes. Historically, yes. The Siberian brown bear was in Israel at that time. It's not there anymore. Uh, It's gone extinct in many places, but it's still in the Middle East. Uh, Was there lions there, right? There's lions in Africa. No, there's no lions in Israel right now, but there was lions right across the Middle East. The Asiatic lion, which is like, if you've ever watched The Lion King, Mufasa is like an African lion, big uh, golden mane, very muscular body, uh, could take down a water buffalo. And then there's Scar, and he's darker, smaller mane, sort of leaner body, not as much muscle, and he could take down a small deer. You know, it's, that's sort of the comparison that they make. You know, there's almost no Asiatic lions left in the world. The only place they're left in the world is in India. There was 10 or 20 of them a number of years ago, but then the Indian people did an amazing job of conservation, and now there's 500. So there still is Asiatic lions today, and that would have probably been the type that David would have fought. Now, how do you... You know, a guy choked out a mountain lion. I think it's a, how did David do it? Well, it's a miracle. He said so. The Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. So I want to, so people can beat lions. People can beat bears. In fact, I'll show you a video really quickly about that. But I want you to believe that that can happen. But I still think these are miracles and David says they are. In fact, if you do lion and bear back-to-back, odds are you're going to lose one of those. Can we show the bear video? This is a Canadian again. I love Canadians. They're tall, they're strong, and they are... They do crazy things. Can we do... See if we can pull this one up. Full of teeth coming at you. It's pretty scary. Like a lot of loggers, Jesse Mengler is used to seeing bears, but he has never once thought one would attack him or that he would live to tell the tale. I'd seen the bear, and the bear was already looking at me. We made eye contact. And um, so I thought, you know, I'll clap my hands and, and holler, and the bear's going to run away, right? So I did that, and uh, <laughs> next thing you know, the, the hair's standing up on the back of this bear's neck, and it's at a full-blown charge right at me. Like With no gun, Mengler was left with no choice. 
he had to find something to defend himself. I just so happened to look down and there was a rock and it was about the size of my hand. I grabbed this rock and I'm still yelling at the bear, you know, hopefully it'll take off. And it's about, by this time it's say, about 10, 10 feet away from me. And I just reached back and the bear is kind of running uphill at me. I was above the bear and it's kind of running at me and I just had the rock in my hand and I just threw the rock and I struck the bear right between the eyes and uh, it's like I shot the bear. It just knocked it right. All right. David had a sling. I don't have time to tell you about all the glories of slings and how they were such an amazing weapon. Uh, I did do a lot of math to come to this conclusion. Being hit by a sling, rock, uh, because they fly at about 100, they can fly well over 100 miles an hour, is like having the best pitcher in the Major League Baseball, who can only throw usually 104, 105 miles per hour, throw a pool ball at the head. So slings are, not, are nothing to be uh, joked about. They actually are devastating. And in the, right, in the hands of someone like David, they would be devastating. But it's still a miracle. I don't want to take the miracle out of it. I don't want to say, oh, this is all explainable by different means and stuff like that. You know what? Kills the lion, kills the bear, and then he sees Goliath. He goes down to the stream. He grabs the rocks. And now, what is fueling him to believe that this is one of the biggest miracles, I think, because he wore a helmet, a bronze helmet. You've got to hit with an enormous amount of force for that rock to hit. And you've got to be accurate. It's got to be powerful. And it's got to stick. It's got to crack the skull. I want to tell you, only a miracle. Only a miracle. I've watched tons of videos, guys, slinging rocks. It's incredible how power they are, powerful they are. But this shot is one in a million. This shot is one in a million. Only a miracle. Only God can do this. And why does he believe and nobody else doesn't? This is what I want to come to at the end. Why does he believe and nobody else doesn't? Kurt said it in the service this morning. He believes the promises of God. He believes the promises of God. Samuel anointed him and said, you're going to be the king of Israel. When? Uh, at some later date. Okay. Well, if that's true, then this this. Philistine and this army is not the end of Israel. In fact, if this guy's in the way of what God has said will be, it's nothing for God to flick him out of the way. And so here is an army. Here's Saul. He should have put his own armor on and gone to battle. Here is this whole army quaking in fear. They've lost fear. They have seen miracles. They know what God has done to take them out of, out of Egypt. They know how he's led them to the promised land. He's provided for them. Just recently, they saw Jonathan and his armor bearer take down a whole Philistine garrison, another miracle. They have miracles all through their lives, but they, in this moment, have forgot. And Goliath seems bigger than God. But David has been in the wilderness, the backside, with the sheep, with, and he's, 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 he's worshiping the Lord, and, and he's, he's gaining victories that nobody sees. He defeats a lion, he defeats a bear. I don't know if he started with foxes, wolves, moved on his way up the food chain, but he's, he's getting confidence in, wow, God, that was you. Wow, God, that was you. Wow, God, that was you. That was you. That was you. Meanwhile, everybody's out here and they're listening to Goliath every day berate them and say how weak they are and how pathetic and how they're going to be bird food. You know what I, the modern equivalent, I think, is? Some people are just like watching the news every night. And then they go on their social media thread. 
And they're like, God, what are you doing in the world today? It just seems hopeless. It seems discouraging. I just feel like, like, everything, like the Goliaths are everywhere. Meanwhile, you've got another person, and they're just reading the Bible, reading the promises of God. They're spending time alone with him. You know what? Those two people, when they come to face the challenge, will come differently. When I need faith to rise up in me, when I need heart to rise up in me, I don't always do it, but it's happened several times where I just, I'm like, Lord, I'm dry, I'm weary, I'm tired, I don't have a lot of faith. I've done this, though. I've, I've said, God, help me remember all the ways you've worked in my life up to this point. Just take me back. Help me, Lord, to remember. Help me to remember. Help me to remember my lions and bears. Help me to remember the things you did in my life that proved to me how faithful you are, that, that showed me how great you are, that showed me that you're bigger than any Goliath I might face. And so I start reciting them. I heard this summer when we were getting some teaching at Kettleson Camp about how people had actually written on rocks the things God had done in their lives, and then they kept them in their home. And then whenever they would uh, say, we are facing something, and our backs are at the wall, and we need God, and, 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 and we're, we're, we're just, our faith is failing, we're feeling weak, and we don't, we, it's hard to trust, and it's difficult, that they would go and pull these rocks up, and they say, remember what he did in 2002? Oh, remember what he did for our kids? Remember those nightmares that would never end, and we prayed, and then they ceased? Remember this? Remember that? Remember that? Remember his provision? Remember how good he's been? And they just pulled these rocks out, and they did this, and it's just, what are they doing? They're reminding themselves of who God is, how great he is. I'm going to tell you if, you, if you're facing something in your life right now, start recounting what God has done for you. It used to be called count your blessings. You could do it that way. But just start recalling what God has already done for you. Recall what all God has already done for you. And maybe you're saying, I, I'm just new to this. I, I don't know if God's ever done anything for me. Well, let me tell you, he has for sure, because you're still here. But let me just also say, then in faith, reach out. In faith, reach out to him. The relationship that Jesus had with the Father, the relationship that David had with God, are offered to all of us. That access to intimate relationship with God, humble dependence on him, and trust building and building and building so that when we face the difficulties, we don't face them alone, we don't face them in fear, but we face them in faith. Would you stand with me? I mean, just, I want to pray for you, but first, I, what's the Goliath in your life? Is it front and center? As we were talking, did it come to your mind? Maybe the Holy Spirit just prompted you and said, yeah, I'm facing it. I'm facing the Goliath. I'm facing something that speaks worry, anxiety, and fear into my life. That's what Goliath did. Every day, in the morning and in the night. Do you have something similar? If you do, I think God wants to speak courage into your life. But it's not just courage like, you know, be courage. It's, it's courage based on this, his promises of who he is to you and who he is in the world. Right? When, when, when uh, 
Jesus encouraged the disciples. So many times he would use these words. He'd say, take heart. Take heart. I'm bigger than the storm. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. I'll never leave you. Take heart. Take heart. Take heart. For those who have lost heart, Jesus keeps breathing that into us. Take heart. And maybe that's what you need today. You just say, I need, I need, I need Jesus speaking to me and telling me to take heart in my situation, in my circumstance. Well, I want to just pray that over you this morning. Would you just... Just agree with me this morning. Lord, I, I pray for everyone who's facing a giant-sized thing. And especially if it keeps speaking fear into their lives. I pray that that voice would be silenced. It would be dulled. It would be, it would be negated by the voice of our Savior, the one who speaks confidence into us because of who he is. Lord, we want to have your voice loud and clear. And when you say, take heart. That we would take heart because of who you are. Lord, you're bigger than this thing. You're bigger than this situation. We want to declare that today. We want to tell our own souls to bless the Lord because you're bigger. And so we bless you. We praise you. We give credit to you. You are bigger. Lord, thank you. For many of us, we can pull back those stones of the past and say, look at this, look at this, look at this. Just like David did, but... Lord, right now, this seems like a bigger hill than the ones in the past. But we know because of your track record, someday, by faith, we'll look back on this one and say, oh, what was I worrying about? God is so great. God is so faithful. God is so big. So, God, we are going to just press forward with faith into the future and believe you for who you are. A great God who has great compassion on all who struggle, on all who doubt, who all who, who have difficulty in this life. And, Lord, we reach out to you. Lord, we want to walk with you. We want that intimacy. We want that closeness. We want that trust and belief. And we don't want to walk in fear. So I pray we just look at you, get our eyes fixed on you, off of the circumstances, and begin to walk. In the name of Jesus. Amen.